All right, good morning, everyone. Sorry, I am running a few minutes late. My goodness, kind of an understatement. Did you hear the, uh, the, mute, the solo at the operatory? Yeah. Oh, if you didn't, you're in for a treat. Oh. From Handel's Messiah, just incredible talent Jesse has. And then um, we've got a bunch of, it's the week after Easter, it's supposed to be going easy. But we've had break-ins and we've had floods and we've had all kinds of shenanigans here, so... Satan, uh, you know, he didn't take too kindly to our resurrection jubilation. Well, that's fine. Small price to pay. So here we are, and we are going to be looking at the small catechism. Today we're going to be looking at what the catechism has to teach us about baptism. Very just foundational teaching. If you don't have a catechism, um, I do have, well, we did have some extras. I was looking around. Maybe they all got used. Uh, but if you don't have a catechism, that's what we're using. I've got a couple up here, so feel free to come grab one if you need it. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If you will open your catechism with me to... We're going to be in the very front part, at least, I think, for the first part of today's class. That's page 23 in your 2017 edition catechism. We're going to walk through what baptism does. And you remember how the catechism's built. There are six chief parts. Anybody feel like they can name them? What's th- and I'm, getting, I'm getting back to my confirmation class already. What's the first chief part? What's the first that shows up? We'll see you all this fall when <laughs> catechism class starts up again. The first chief part is the Ten Commandments. Uh-huh. Followed by the creed, followed by the Lord's Prayer. All right, and then we have the gifts. Next, baptism and almost the Lord's Supper, not yet. Confession, absolution, and then the Lord's Supper. Nice work. All right, so the six chief parts that forms the catechism. And, you know, it's kind of like saying you know the Bible, but you don't know anything that's written on its pages. It's a little bit like saying, I, <laughs> I know the catechism, but I don't know the six chief parts. The six chief parts are the catechism. So that's, it's worthwhile to commit to memory, if you haven't already, what those six chief parts are, because they're really the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, that's how the catechism was created and arranged is, look, we understand that you're busy with your vocation, with your life, with your calling, We can't expect you to know the Bible from cover to cover. What if we take the most essential parts of the Christian faith and put them together in a simple way that the head of the household can teach his family? That's the catechism. It's not an invention of the 16th century, by the way. The first catechism um, we have uh, comes from either the late 1st century or the early 2nd century. So you're thinking decades after the New Testament was written. And that document, that catechism, is called the Didache, after which this hall is named, Didache Hall, or Didache, as you might have heard it pronounced, uh, Didache. And Didache means teaching. 
And catechism really means teaching, too. It has to do with the method of, of asking a question and answering it. So this kind of listen and repeat, this echoing back and forth, that's where if you look at the root word of catechism, there's the word echo in it. That's where it comes from. Okay, so the Catechism Six Chief Parts, and in this book you have right here, you have the six chief parts along with um, some prayers and the table of duties, and that really only takes up the first 30-ish pages, 40-ish pages, just depending on how you're counting. And then after that, of course, you have the explanation, and the explanation just takes those six chief parts, expands them out, outline format, and then inserts a whole bunch of questions contemporary to the day or contemporary to our concerns. So again, just kind of re-covering here what the catechism is and is about. All right, so into baptism, which is the first and foundational gift that God gives to us. And if you're on page 23 in your small catechism, again, if you, uh, if you don't have one and you need one, you can sneak up here to the side and grab one. You're not actually in view of the camera, so you're not shaming yourself in front of that. You can just grab one of these and retreat. Nobody will see you except for everybody here. <laughs> All right, page 23. Sacrament of Holy Baptism. A picture's worth a thousand words. What do you see in the picture? Yep, shell and a cross. What's underneath the shell? Yeah, baptismal font. Okay, so you see the cross up at the top. And then the shell, that's an artistic representation of water. Because, you know, wavy lines can only take you so far. So the shell just means water. And then how many, how many drops of water do you see coming? Three. Three, because it's baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit kind of in a nice a nice analogy for the Trinity. All analogies of the Trinity break down, but they're all water, they're all God, and yet there are three distinct drops, three distinct persons. All right, and so from the cross to the shell to the water down to the font, and that is to say that, this, that everything that baptism gives you, it is taking from the cross, from what Jesus has done on the cross, and delivering it to you. Now, we're going to see how this works in myriad ways, but maybe at the very heart of it, is that the forgiveness of sins that Christ wins on the cross is delivered to in baptism. So that baptism is a washing away of sins. So reflecting back on Holy Week and on the Passion, what particular aspect of the crucifixion would maybe most dramatically, most iconically capture that the crucifixion of Jesus flows forth into baptism that then flows forth on, unto us as a washing away of sins. See yes. Oh, I was going to say, since I had the mic, it must be me. Um, it's the, spit, the side when they, the yes. Roman soldiers pierce the side and water and blood come out. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So when the, when the side is pierced, water and blood flow out, and they don't flow out intermingled. They flow out separately. It's a miraculous flowing out. You can tell this because John really doubles down and says, I am an eyewitness. I have saw this, and it is true. If this was just the normal event that happens uh, you know, when someone dies, and it's just water and blood mingled together, and 
like, what's miraculous about that? What's the point at which John needs to double down at that point in his narrative and say, the one who has seen it is bearing testimony and what he is saying is true? It's because there's a miraculous flowing forth of water and blood from his side. And we can glimpse here the water of holy baptism and the blood that fills the chalice so that what Christ is doing on the cross, the spear that pierces his side and up into his heart flows forth in the very two means by which the church is created and sustained. So, you know that Christ is the second Adam. Remember the first Adam? Before there was an Eve? When God was going to create the Eve, what's the first thing he did? Put Adam into a sleep. And not just any sleep, a deep sleep, like the sleep of death. The kind of sleep I had after Easter Sunday. Just, <laughs> you wake up and you say, who am I? Where am I? Yeah, so in, yeah, into the deepest sleep Adam goes. And then God does what? Pierces his side and takes out a rib so that the woman is formed from sleeping Adam's side. Now notice how we glimpse this very reality in the crucifixion of Jesus, who is put into a deep sleep from which he will rise three days later. And God, again, has his side pierced, and from his side takes now not a rib, but water and blood. And through water and blood, he forms Christ's Eve, the new Eve, the Holy Christian Church, the water of baptism, the blood of Holy Communion. Uh, it is uh, John who lays this out in his gospel and then also in his first epistle. He describes this so that it's the water, the blood, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who testify or bear witness of who Christ is, what he's done for us, and our salvation. All right, so again, looking at the picture, what we receive in baptism comes directly from the cross. So we're not putting, we're not going to pit baptism and the cross against each other. Like, well, if the cross saves you, baptism can't. Or if baptism saves you, the cross can't. You see how that's kind of like a horizontal way of thinking? We're going to think in a vertical way that what is one for us on the cross is delivered to us in holy baptism. Baptism saves, as the scriptures say, because it takes what the cross gives us and delivers it to us. Does that point make sense? Okay. So here's where, yeah, a picture is worth a thousand words because if you know what the scriptures teach, then this picture is all you need to refresh your mind as to what baptism really is. All right. Page 23, what is baptism? Answer, baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Okay, so where do we get baptismal water? Once a year, somebody has to borrow Jeff Bezos' rocket ship and blast into the heavens, get the celestial water, come down, sell it at a premium. No. Where do we get the water? From the sink. Yeah, it's just water. 
That's it. You can take water from the river. You can take water from an ocean. You can take water from a lake. You can take water from a sink. Water is water. It's not the water itself that's important. In fact, as uh, Luther teaches us in the flood prayer, God has instituted all waters to be a lavish flood and washing away of sins. So It's really kind of a profound way to think. If we think in terms of specific revelation, the scriptures, and natural revelation, what it is we see and experience with our eyes, what the world itself tells us, how much water is there on the planet? Kind of a lot. Yeah, those oceans are big. We were always taught as kids, it's probably wrong, but we were always taught it's like 75% water, roughly, and uh, 25% land. So we live in a watery planet. What about our bodies? Tons of water. I can't remember the statistics. But it's, uh, our, water, our, our bodies are like a majority water, in fact. So that should tell us something. How important is water for life? Essential. Essential. How long can you last without drinking water? About three days if you're lucky and you're not going to be loving your life. So about three days without water. So water is absolutely essential for life, um, just in terms of drinking, in terms of hydrating. But what about food? Can you have food without water? Crops aren't going to grow, animals aren't going to live unless you have water. Water is life. God has simply written that into creation. And so it should, take, it should, it should be of no surprise when God comes and takes water and says, yes, water is life. It's the washing away of sins, the washing away of death, the giving of life. And he does this then by connecting his word to that water. So the uh, the power of baptism is in the power of God's word. So could I in and of myself baptize anyone by my own strength, by my own power? Could I simply speak some sort of magical incantation over water and make it actually wash away your sins? No. So the power is not in any human being. The power is in God and in his word that he connects to the waters of baptism, making baptism what it is, a washing away of sin. Does that make sense? Of course, if we track baptism, um, not only in terms of natural revelation, what we see all around us in water, if you track it through the Old Testament, baptism or water is everywhere. At the very dawn of creation, the Holy Spirit is hovering over something. Over what? Water. It's there. The Spirit and water. Do we see that again? Yeah, when Jesus says you have to be born from above of water and spirit. See? It's a new creation. Where else do we see it? There's the flood. Now, flood is destruction for thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, many more than that. But it's salvation for who? Noah and seven others. So baptism is a means by which God destroys, but also saves. What about the Red Sea? Isn't it interesting that the climactic event of leaving Egypt and Pharaoh changes his mind yet another time and he chases them down and drives them up against the shores of the Red Sea and it's through those waters that God saves his people and he does so again in the same way, destroying and making alive. In this case, who's destroyed? 
Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and his army, they're all destroyed in pursuit, and who's saved? All of Israel, man, woman, and child, who were, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, baptized with this baptism in the Red Sea. Okay, so again, God saves through water. And we've seen, we've seen now three major ways in which he creates and saves through water. We could get to an individual example if we were to say uh, Naaman. Do you remember Naaman the Syrian who's covered in leprosy? And he goes uh, to Elisha and Elisha tells him to do what? Wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman, of course, thinks this is a great idea, right? He thinks it's absolute foolishness. If, it, if I could have washed my leprosy off, I could have done so in the pristine streams back home. I didn't need to come down here to this grotesque little Jordan River flowing with mud and jump my diseased body in there. And he's going to walk away. In fact, he is walking away. And his servant talks him into it and says, hey, you went all this way to hear from a great man. A great man told you to go to the water and wash. Maybe you should give it a shot. And he's like, okay, fine. And lo and behold, he goes to the water and comes up and is free of his leprosy. There are many other events like this we could point to in the Old Testament scriptures that are, are types and foreshadowing of what baptism is. We could even think of the corporate worship life of the people of Israel um, when the new covenant is instantiated by Moses every morning the priests who are to serve at the tabernacle and then temple of God what's what do they do every morning what's their ritual they wash yeah there's a daily baptism for the priests that serve before God what then does it mean that we are royal priests but that we are washed every day in this perpetual baptismal flood that we might serve God. Okay, so baptism is thoroughgoing in terms of natural revelation. If we just open our eyes, we're going to see water and the connection of water and life and water and creation everywhere all around us. When we open up the Bible, we're going to see the same thing all throughout the Old Testament. Then we get to the New, it's no different. So this holy baptism that Christ institutes isn't just plain water, but it's water... Um, included in God's command and combined with God's word. The power and effect to wash away sins is in that word of God. What about God's command? Well, this is important because it means according to the institution of Christ. We're going to see where that comes from next in the next scripture. But the institution of Christ is important because you might run into some kind of anomalous circumstance uh, Little kids sometimes baptize all kinds of things. <laughs> baptize their dog with a garden hose, baptize their rubber ducks in the bathtub, baptize their stuffed animals <laughs> that then have to be washed. But yeah, this is, uh, are these valid baptisms? No, but why not? If, especially if God's word is there, if they're baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, because it needs to be in accordance with Christ's command. Right? So let's go on to uh, see which is that word of God. And that's, again, page 23 in your catechism. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that verse continues, and teaching them whatsoever I have commanded. But for our purposes, baptism is in view. So, disciples are made by baptism and by teaching. Now, this is in accordance with God's command. Okay, So, if you've got water, what's the word of God? The name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see that right here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that name of God is what's powerful and effective and creates baptism. Make sense? And then baptism needs to happen in the right context and way. That is according to Christ's command with the intent and purpose of making disciples of all nations. So then this forms the essence of biblical baptism and this gift Christ gives to us. Last week we looked at Christ's baptism in the Jordan and how that comes at the very beginning of his ministry in the book of Matthew. And here we find ourselves at the very end of Matthew. Christ has been crucified and risen, and he's giving his disciples this commandment to multiply, to make other disciples. All right, that's the first part of baptism, the essence of what baptism is. Let's pause there and see if you have any questions. If it's kind of one-on-one, if it's kind of basic, that's the point. That's great. Yes, just one second. I, I can see the microphone coming toward you. I'm sorry. Um, my, this page is scribbled full of antidotes, I guess, of last year's class. Mm. But I wrote down this, and I want you to elaborate on it, or, or just reveal what I'm supposed to know of it. They were baptized into his death. I probably should understand that, but it, it's a mystery to me. They yeah. were baptized into his death. Yeah, it's a great question. So when we get to the fourth Part, we're going to talk about the baptism into his death and thus also into newness of life and resurrection. So if we could just table that for a second, we'll get right to it. I'm glad you wrote down something like I, that, that was good. <laughs> Sometimes I say dumb things, and I'm always fearful that somebody's going to write it down. Oh, look at that. Yeah, you have to be careful of that. There's certain pages in my Bible that are like so filled with lines and notes that I can't read the text anymore. Yeah, that's the problem. Looks like the conspiracy theorist wall meme. All right. Let's uh, look at the second part of baptism. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I went back and looked at the notes in my books once, and I was so embarrassed I got an eraser out and, took, and erased. No. Yeah, yeah. But that yeah. wasn't my question. My question was, Luther, you mentioned Luther's prayer, or, or Luther's, where he says that all the waters are sanctified. Mm-hmm. I, I may not be quite stating it correctly. And I believe he also connects that to the baptism of Christ in the Jordan. Mm. Do we, uh, how does that work? Do we have, I mean, I, I can't quite see it. Yeah. What is, the, what is it about the baptism of Christ in the Jordan, and what did he say there that, that sort of forces us into that interpretation that that act sanctified all waters. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think it forces us into any interpretation. And I don't even think it's really an interpretation as much as it's an observation. And a pious and right one, it's analogous to what we also say in the funeral rite um, with the graves of those who have departed in the faith. That by Christ, um, and, and this is actually a, a fourth part of baptism conversation, but as Christ himself is laid into the tomb, he sanctifies the graves of all who believe in him. 
So there's just this sense in which as the water touches him, the water becomes a fit vehicle. As, the, as his body is laid into the grave, the grave becomes a fit vehicle. Um, these things are sanctified by the fact that they touch the Son of God in human flesh. That's just as general as possible what's being stated there. Now, nothing hyper-dogmatic or trying to be weird about it. I, I think it's simply acknowledging this kind of universal reality and transformation of creation that's taking place when the Son of God becomes flesh, when that Son of God made flesh is baptized, when that Son of God made flesh is laid into the tomb, etc. Yes, I see a hand over here. Um, to your right. Uh, perhaps you'll get to this later naturally, and if so, feel free to mm-hmm. table it for later. But in the creeds, we confess we believe in one baptism for the con- uh, forgiveness of sins. Yep. And it's my understanding the creeds were written usually in response to some other heresy, etc., or false teaching. So at the time, were there multiple baptisms being taught and going on? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that that has anything specifically to do with anything. That may be the uh, Donatistic view of... Uh, so this whole idea of, hey, if your pastor turns out to be a fraud, do you need to be baptized again? <laughs> if your pastor gives, uh, like, he's under persecution under the threat of death, and he caves and renounces Christ... Do you need to be baptized again? And so in, in this light, which was an early church controversy, it, it, perhaps that line of the creed speaks to it and says, one baptism is sufficient, that one baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it's hard to say because so many layers kind of, of meaning get added onto it. I think the key there is probably the remission of sins and the idea that there is just simply one Christian baptism. There's not baptism of this branch of Christianity and that branch of Christianity and it's the other branch of Christianity and so forth it's this is we can see this even today where a Roman Catholic baptism is a baptism to everybody else a Lutheran baptism is a baptism to everybody else an Eastern Orthodox baptism is a baptism to everybody else there's this universal understanding that as long as it is a baptism into the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit in accord with Christ's command it's a valid baptism so that line out of the creed, I think, has that function today as much as any other. Was there another hand? Yep, please. Uh, is there a connection, can you make the connection between the washing of the disciples' feet and baptism and how that connects? Yeah, it's a tenuous connection. More of a homiletical connection than an exegetical connection. One doesn't read that text and go, aha, this is immediately and obviously talking about baptism. But it is an, a homiletical reflection on that text that goes back quite some, some ways. That Because Jesus is speaking about them having already washed and being clean, thus only needing their feet to be washed, there's a, type, a typological sense in which baptism is the full and free washing of our sins, but we still need confession absolution. We still need our Lord to take us back, return us to that baptismal grace. And purity, But that's all homiletical, that's all secondary, that's all pious devotional thinking. It's not coming straight out of the text. Okay, shall we go on to the second part? 
So what benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. All right, the kids are the best theologians when it comes to baptism. Because if you ask any kid, just about any age, what is baptism washing away? Every last one of them says, your sins. Are you sure it's not just, you know, the dirt from your forehead or the dirt from your... Of course not. It's what you take a bath for. So what's being washed away? Sins. And so if baptism is a washing away of sins, and and we have specific texts that cite that. Um, For example, uh, Paul is told after his conversion, get up, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Yeah, it's right there. But it should be obvious. I mean, that's the thing. This, <laughs> you shouldn't need a chapter and verse for this. God wants you to be washed. Washed of what? I don't know. The mustard stain on your shirt? I mean, the, the grass stain on your jeans? What, what do you think you need to be washed of? Of course, sins. So this is just not, um, this is not calculus here. All right, so in the forgiveness of sins then, if the wages of sin is death, if sin is removed then, death is removed, if death is removed, then Satan's claim on us for eternity is removed. And you can see the logic then. If it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death, it rescues also from the devil. And thus the converse, it gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Now, to all who believe this, baptism isn't just an automatic thing. It's not like we can invite all of Orange County here for some kind of potluck on the grass lawn turn on the sprinklers, I'll pop up from behind the wall with a loudspeaker and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. Uh, You need to have faith, and it needs to be in accordance with Christ's command. That is, the intent is to be a disciple. Okay, so... Um, faith is included. And we're going we're to see that in the verse cited, which are these words and promises of God. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So faith and baptism always go together. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So again, even in Jesus' words here, we can see that we don't pit faith and baptism against each other as if, again, in this horizontal kind of way that we pitted baptism against the cross. If I'm saved by the cross, I can't be saved by baptism. If I'm saved by baptism, I can't be saved by the cross. No, that's the completely wrong way of looking at it. The cross saves you and baptism saves you. Pop them up vertically. The cross saves you and that salvation is delivered to you through baptism. Thus, baptism saves you. And then if you just take that, that one rung further down the ladder, that gift of the forgiveness of sins in baptism is received by what? Faith. And because that faith receives that gift, that faith can be said to save you as well. If you were missing the faith, you wouldn't be saved. But each one of those takes on a nuanced meaning when it says saves you. But there's a little economy, a little ordering and structure there. Um, Faith saves because it receives. So we're not going to pit faith and baptism against each other as if, well, I'm either saved by faith or by baptism. No. The scriptures say baptism saves you and faith saves you. How so? Again, tilt them vertically in your mind. The cross saves you, delivering everything Christ won through baptism. Baptism saves you because it's the delivery system. Faith saves you because it receives it profitably. Make sense? All right. What uh, condemns, according to Jesus, only unbelief. So if it happens that someone did believe but wasn't baptized, you know, why is an important question. But let's say they had every intention of being baptized and it didn't happen. Um, They can still be saved. It's only unbelief that condemns.
So far, so good. Okay. Third part. Again, page 24 in your catechism. How can water do such great things? Which we've kind of already answered. Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. <clears throat> For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a life-giving water rich in grace and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. This is a beautiful statement. It's one of the places where the scriptures say that baptism does save you. So, he, and he here is the Father, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, a really literalistic wooden translation, Genesis again, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal to be made entirely new, a new creation, a new creature. That's what's in view here. So God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. See the connection between water and spirit, exactly as Jesus says in John 3. Now, it is this of this spirit when he says, whom... He, again the Father, poured out on us generously. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, let's just pause right there. We already see the Trinity revealed in this verse about baptism, this verse about washing. And now we see the economy of the Trinity, or the ordering of the Trinity, that the Father pours out the water and Spirit through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our pastor, um, the pastor and bishop of our souls, Peter says, and that water and spirit are poured out by the Father through Christ upon us. We're going to see that it saves us. Who's doing the doing? Is it the person being baptized? Do I get to wave a little flag and say, I just, I just did my first act of obedience. I just did baptism. No, it's the Father who is baptizing by pouring out this washing of renewal and rebirth in the Holy Spirit, whom the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. It's the Father doing the doing through Jesus Christ. It's Christ doing the doing uh, upon us. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. How do you become an heir of Elon Musk? He would have to adopt you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, or you'd have to be born his child. So you'd have to be born or adopted. You'd have to become somehow, some way, shape, and form one of his children. And that's exactly what is meant here. Having been justified by his grace, we become heirs, inheritors, and in order to be that, we have to be his children. And so water is a new birth wherein we become children of God. Heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Okay, so what did, what did God the Father do? He saved us. Very first line. He saved us. How? 
through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, so that we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It couldn't be clear. He saves us through baptism. All right, so far so good. I see a hand flying up in the back. Um, and then, and I agree with you. Um, but then, the, so then there's the part, like you said earlier, when, say, a person w- raised in a non-Christian home, mm-hmm. and then they hear the gospel, and they're saved, you know, say, in their 30s or 40s, yeah. hearing the gospel, mm-hmm. and then, of course, they get baptized. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm all for infant baptism in, in but, you know, just that, so, like you were saying, what you said earlier, if the person didn't manage to get the water baptism because before he made it to the church, but he's got the faith, he, he would be in heaven, right? Yeah, I don't, we don't want to call this any other baptism. Um, but it would also, but it's not the, here's the question, like, just because one ekes by as an exception and happens to land into heaven doesn't mean that that's right or proper or the way it should work or the way God wants it to work, right? So, right. so we, don't, we don't argue from the exception of, like, and this is how perverse it is. It's like, um, well, if I could just convert on my deathbed without being baptized and be saved, then I'm just going to do that. In fact, that's what God wants everyone to do. Is that right? No, no, not, a right. non-believer wouldn't. I mean, if, if you're really saved, you wouldn't think that way. I mean, of course, right? Yeah. So that, but, yeah, that's but, the point. But there are there are a lot of people. I would think missionaries. We go to all these countries, and and they've never heard the gospel. They hear the gospel, get they get saved, and then they they and then they baptize their infants, which is absolutely correct. But so I don't say there has to be a name for it, but. I don't know. It just, you know, that's what I'm saying. It, it happens. Yeah I, yeah. I mean, we can talk about exceptions all over the place, but that's not the point of the scriptures. The point of the scriptures and the point of Jesus is to be a disciple, you are baptized and taught. That's normative. You're not really, I mean, this is a completely normal way to speak within the churches. You're not a Christian until you're baptized. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. what about the person who isn't baptized? Well, what about them? I mean, that's God's business, and can they be saved apart from baptism? Yeah, but that's an exception, not the norm. Um, and and if, to think that there would not be any risk in this is absolutely foolhardy. Um, do you remember uh, Moses was told to circumcise his sons, and he didn't? How'd that go? He almost died, if not for his wife taking matters into her own hands. God almost killed him for not circumcising his children. What's the New Testament version? So this is a serious thing, and I don't want to, we're not in a position to make light of it or to make exceptions for it or anything else. Obviously, we can say where people aren't baptized, God is gracious and good and can save. But we're not going to allow the devil to get a toehold here and wrench baptism away from us as if it were incidental or, you know, just, just hey, take it or leave it, because that would be a profoundly dangerous and, uh, way of looking at the scriptures. Well, I, so some people would call, if they came, when, if, when God gives them the faith for, through the gospel, mm-hmm. then it would be the spiritual baptism Mm. They, would, they would give it the name baptism. You yeah. know a lot of people do, though. Yeah, yeah. and they need to be yeah. corrected. That's yeah. completely nonsensical. Nowhere in the scriptures does it talk about that being any kind of baptism whatsoever. 
The early church, I mean, if we want to be generous about that, the early church would talk about that as conception but not birth. On what basis? On the basis that Jesus says you must be born again of water and the Spirit. If someone believes in Jesus but is not yet born, they have life but they're not born, what's that like? Like one who's conceived in the womb, who has life, who is a child and a son but is not yet born. And so our problem is we've got such perverse and unbiblical theology that you've got 40-year-olds, you've got 40-year-old fetuses who are, walking, who are walking around going, well, I believed in Jesus for 40 years, but I've never gotten baptized. You've been, a, you've been conceived and in the womb for 40 years, but you've never been born of water and the Spirit. That's unnatural. That's a problem. Please. Pastor, I, I communed when I was 12, so I don't need to do that anymore, right? <laughs> um, now, Jesus I, says as often as you. That doesn't sound often. Yeah, I think you're supposed to kind of bathe in grace, not uh, not just take a little drop right. here and there. Yeah, Right. Well, and that's why we have to kind of be like really forceful about this point, because this is the full spigot of God's grace, and we can't allow that to be cut off, yeah. as is so often happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a different question, though, or a different uh, point. You were talking about uh, the vertical, right, that, yeah, that, sure. that, that salvation comes through the cross, then through the, uh, uh, the means of grace through faith. Yeah. Right, right. And it seems like that argument that the, the opposing argument that says if not or if by baptism, then not by the cross mm-hmm. could be applied to the cross. If by the cross, then not by Christ. Right. Yeah, I, I, mean, I would find that to be an equally it, it, right, idiotic the, argument. Yeah the, yeah. the cross itself. OK, well, it's a piece of wood. I'm not going to. Yeah, I don't know, Dale. If somebody brings that up to me, I'm just not going to entertain it. Yeah, I mean, why, I mean it's, it's, why would I waste my time? It'd be more beneficial for me to like beat my head against. Well, I mean, it's clear that it's it's it, the whole thing is vertically through Christ. I mean, it all comes from God ultimately. Right. right? Yeah. 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 And, the Father and, saves and us. The Son saves us. The Spirit saves us. I was us. just pointing out it's a ridiculous argument. Yeah. That, that it comes through a particular chain. Yeah. 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 You know, every link in that chain is essential. It is essential. Yeah. That's a great yeah. point. It's a great point. Yeah. Um, okay, so last, last but not least here, the fourth part that we wanted to get to, because um, this is your question, Ellie. So what does such baptizing with water indicate? Now, in view here is, is immersion, which is kind of regulative in the history of the church. It's not essential, because God never decrees how much water you've got to have. But it is sort of the norm. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires that a new man and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. All right, so baptism is a new birth. What's actually being born? A new creation, a new Man, and so now you've got this old man and this new man. What does baptism tell you the relationship is? Well, it's antithetical. The new man's job is to daily drown the old Adam through contrition. That's a fancy word for sorrowing over sin. And repentance, that's more properly turning away from sin. 
and thus drowning and killing the old Adam with its sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So this is how baptism is used on a daily basis. It's why taking the Old Testament template of daily prayer every morning and evening, that's if you were a Hebrew, a faithful Hebrew, you would pray every morning and every evening. That is also yours to do as a faithful Christian. And it simply takes on a baptismal shape and form when you make the sign of the cross and your prayers include the Our Father because you have been made a child of God through the waters of holy baptism. So then uh, every day our, our days are lived baptismally. We close our days the same way, the sign of the cross and the Our Father again to close our day. So that our whole days are baptismal, our whole days are lived drowning the old Adam and causing the new man to daily emerge and arise. All right, well, where is this written? Is this just the... uh... So in immersion, you know, you're drowned under the waters and then you're pulled up. That's the point. So that we're daily drowning the old Adam. The new man is being pulled up out. All right, St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, we were therefore buried with him. Jesus is in view here. Buried with Jesus through baptism, into death. Here's the connection between the grave and baptism and Christ sanctifying baptismal waters and Christ sanctifying the graves of the faithful. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And of course, what follows that is, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But why is that part omitted here? Because that part talks about bodily death and bodily resurrection. It's guaranteed, it's certain, it's given to us in baptism. But that's not what's in view here in the catechism. What's in view is especially that last clause, we too may live a new life. So the template here is as Christ was crucified, buried, and risen, we are crucified with him through baptism, buried with him through baptism, and risen with him even now to walk in newness of life. And then Romans 6 goes on to describe what that newness of life is, but it's simply walking in the Spirit, confessing our sins, which is a way of drowning the old Adam, repenting from our sins, not only contrition, feeling sorrow, but repenting, turning away, trying to make it harder and less likely for us to sin. And of course, this is Romans 6. What follows in Romans 7? The good that I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus. Then what happens in Romans 8? Your salvation is is secure precisely because God has taken it out of your hands and has chosen you even before the foundation of the world, before you had any merits or worthiness. So don't start to think just because you're trying to walk in the Spirit now and you're failing some days and you're succeeding other days that now you remain in the kingdom because of how great your struggle is or that you're going to lose the kingdom because of how poor your struggle is. All of that's beside the point when it comes to salvation. Your salvation was already determined before the foundation of the world when God elected you in Christ Jesus. So that's a a quick view of Romans 6, 7, and 8. And then baptism we want to leverage because really, I mean, what is it to be a Christian? What is it to be a Lutheran Christian at its essence? It's not to memorize a set of doctrines. It's It's not to memorize a new moral code and live by it. 
the essence of Christian life, the essence of being a Lutheran Christian is baptismal. It's to be a new creature and to walk in that newness of life every single day. And to use, to use those physical things like making the sign of the cross and saying the Our Father as instantiations of this reality, this new reality that God has created in you and in your life. And then to seek out to live baptismally, which means to receive daily and richly the washing away of sins. And that newness of life that says, you know what, yesterday I fell into that, not today, Satan. And off you go. So, uh, really cannot be cannot be overemphasized that the baptismal life is the Christian life. All right? We're out of time. The Lord be with you.